The Rural Health Voice, Episode 40, Senator Tim Kaine. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. This episode is the recording of a virtual press conference Vera J. conducted asking Senator Tim Kaine about the Mothers and Newborn Success Act. So welcome, everyone. The Virginia Rural Health Association has a 20-year history of working to improve the health of rural Virginians through education, advocacy, and fostering cooperative partnerships. In recent years, we have become increasingly concerned of the health inequities that are the reality for minority populations in rural Virginia. African-American women in Virginia are three times more likely to die after giving birth than white women. To address these disparities, we are proud to support the Mothers and Newborn Success Act proposed by Senator Tim Kaine and are pleased to have him here this morning to discuss this important piece of legislation. Senator Kaine, welcome and the floor is yours. Well, listen, Beth, thank you. And to everybody who is on the call, I'm really excited to have a chance to dialogue with you. I'm sorry that a technical glitch is keeping you from seeing me, but people usually like my voice better than my face anyway. I'm just sorry that I I can't see you guys, but we'll have a really good discussion. Um, And I want to let you know that I've got some good staff on this call, uh, some of whom I think you might know, Gwen Mason and Mitchell Alexander from my Roanoke office. Laura Blevins, who staffs my office in Abingdon, and I also think Katie Stunts, my press secretary, might be on. Um, it's also possible that Katie Wright, who is my really dynamic healthcare policy expert, is on as well. Um, this is going to be a wide-ranging discussion. As Beth indicated, I'm really happy that the VRHA has gotten into support a bill that we introduced recently, the Mothers and Newborn Success Act. I introduced the bill last week together with Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and a companion bill has been introduced on the House side by Terry Sewell, Congresswoman from Alabama. And um, as Beth indicated in her introductory comments, um, the disparities in outcomes for uh, women, uh, African-American women, are just shocking in comparison to maternal outcomes for Caucasian women. Even if you control for income and you deal with very high income individuals, the racial disparities in maternal health outcomes is very, very significant. Um, The reason that Lisa Murkowski signed on is these disparities are particularly acute, not only for African-American women, but also for Indian women. And Alaska has a sizable tribal population. And so that is a significant uh, issue of hers as well. Um, so we introduced this bill now a year, uh, a week ago, and uh, Katie Wright from my team has been very, very key to working on this with stakeholders from around the country now for nearly a year. We decided we wanted to do it about a year ago, and then we've worked very hard on it. Um, and the bill has a, a series of, of provisions to inspire research, uh, public education, uh, innovative grant funding to try to bring down our maternal um, mortality rate, and particularly with a focus on bringing down that rate anywhere where there are significant disparities. Um, And we introduced the bill with a sense of optimism. Some of you might remember when I was governor, Virginia for a long time had had one of the worst infant mortality rates in the United States. We were about 35th in the country, even though we were 11th or 12th in the country in uh, per capita income. And so it was unusual that a state that where, you know, the per capita income was high would be so high in infant mortality. I hired a health commissioner at the time, Karen Remley, and the health commissioner of Virginia has a wide portfolio. It's not just traditional health care, but it's also restaurant inspections and septic tank permits. I mean, the health commissioner has a, a wide um, uh, breadth of responsibilities, but I hired a pediatrician and I said, I'm giving you one responsibility, and that's trying to get Virginia's infant mortality rate more in the realm of what it ought to be. And Karen did some really good work, um, and by adopting targeted approaches, and instead of trying to do a statewide one-size-fits-all solution, when it frankly wasn't really a statewide problem, it was really intense in about 10 to 12 communities, we really targeted our 
our effort right at the problem and we made a significant difference in Virginia's infant mortality rate and moved it to a place where in comparison with other states we're more where we ought to be based upon economic and other factors. So having worked on that in the past, I approach this issue with a sense of optimism if we if we do it and and really focus our energies and attentions in the communities where the need is the greatest, we can make a significant difference. Now we know um, that in rural America, rural Virginia, there's all kinds of very significant barriers to healthcare access, hospital accesses, is lackings, uh, uh, physicians are not as easy to access, percentages of populations that lack health insurance can be high. And so while one of the main drivers of this bill was to reduce racial disparities, um, I believe it's gonna be the case that if we can make this bill happen, we're gonna have a significant effect on uh, any community where maternal health outcomes are not what we want them to be. So. That's the goal, and to be able to work on it together with Terry Sewell and Lisa Murkowski, we, we represent very different constituencies, very different states, but to be able to work on it together um, is you know, the way we ought to do things in D.C. Why did we introduce it last week? Well, as you all know, and I hope we might talk about this too, because I want to hear from uh, our rural health providers about, okay, current status quo in COVID and what what remaining help to our rural healthcare providers in particular need. Um, we introduced the bill last week because the CDC recently changed their list of high-risk populations from COVID. The, the, the list originally was, you know, obviously seniors, people with any history of respiratory issues, um, certainly folks with uh, some underlying health conditions, heart, diabetes, et cetera, were listed as high-risk populations. But within the last month, the CDC has adjusted the high-risk list to include pregnant women and lactating women, women in the first few months after a delivery, because um, it took a while for that to start to show up. But as it's now showing up, there are some significant issues that pregnant women and women in the first months after delivery are dealing with that make them uniquely vulnerable to COVID. So we introduced the bill on the thought that because the CDC has now added pregnant women and those immediately after delivery into the high-risk list that we might be able to get this Maternal and Infant Success Act, or at least some significant portions of it, connected to the next COVID legislation. Let me segue to that uh, right now, give you a status report on it, and then I want to open it up and answer questions, but especially take your advice. So on COVID, obviously, this has been devastating, 151,000 deaths and you know, I believe dramatically more than there needed to be. The United States was slow out of the blocks um, in taking this as seriously as other nations did. There's, there's blame to go around. China hid the ball. The WHO didn't do everything they needed to. But an awful lot of nations around the world, even though those things affected them too, they moved out quickly on testing, contact tracing, isolating, treatment, and the procurement of PPE and other necessary um, treatment modalities and, uh, and, and equipment and ventilators that they need to take care of patients. Uh, bluntly, we lost about six to eight weeks at the front end because the administration pretended it was not a problem, that it was gonna go away, that we didn't need to worry about it. And um, that meant that we didn't early start an aggressive testing protocol. The testing is still, vastly inadequate and we also didn't do it soon enough so that we could use contact tracing to isolate and treat individuals and keep them from infecting others that's the way other nations in the world did it and by doing that they also limited the damage to their economies yesterday the united states reported that in the second quarter of the year gdp shrunk by 32 percent which is the single greatest reduction in gdp ever in the 145 years the u.s has been measuring that on a quarterly basis by comparison, the uh, EU's economic um, hit, and it was a hit, was a decline in the EU to Eurozone GDP, a decline of about 13%. Um, and it's been even less than that in nations like South Korea and others. So it's been very, very discouraging uh, to have to deal with a pandemic that would have been tough under any circumstances, but has been made much more difficult 
because bluntly the administration said it was going away when that wasn't the case. Um, Congress in early March started to do a series of bills, four bills now, um, the biggest one being the CARES Act at the end of March. And the way to look at those bills is they essentially were trying to provide resources to deal with both the healthcare and the economic challenge by putting resources in five pillars. Aid to individuals and families. So that was the direct check, enhanced unemployment insurance assistance, some, assi some assistance surrounding mortgage foreclosure or uh, rental eviction, um, uh, an augmentation of the child care development block grant program. So that's pillar one, really important. Pillar two, assistance to small businesses, including nonprofits. Some of you on this call may work for with uh, businesses or institutions that received a paycheck protection program uh, grant. It's a loan that is then turned into a grant if you maintain payroll at a certain level. That's the second pillar, helping small businesses with this grant program. Pillar three is a loan program for larger businesses, those with more than 500 employees administered by Treasury and the Fed. Pillar four is state and local government aid. And then pillar five has been aid to hospitals, healthcare providers, the VA, nursing homes, testing, uh, um, funding, funding for vaccine research. So the healthcare pillar is the fifth pillar. We had to come back after doing the CARES Act at the end of April and sort of refill the healthcare bucket and refill the small business uh, grant bucket. Uh, and we're now in Washington grappling with what's the next step. Democrats put a proposal on the table around Memorial Day, the HEROES Act, which was very focused on hardship aid to individuals and families, but also had significant funding for state and local government, educational institutions, healthcare institutions. The way Congress works in divided power is the Democratic House, you know, will put a marker down and then a Republican Senate will, and then the negotiations start in earnest. It's been discouraging that it's been 10 weeks now since the House laid out a Democratic proposal. There was, you know, no expectation that the Senate would just immediately embrace it, but that the, that the Senate GOP would put a proposal on the table from which we could then have a compromise negotiation with the White House that delay has been significant and the delay has been if you follow the news this week because there is deep internal division on the republican side about whether they want to do a bill and if so what are the contents so we're in a very um, challenging negotiation right now the first four bills we did were quite bipartisan um, the good news is i do believe now i'm an optimistic person my senior senator mark warner i says i'm too optimistic but I do believe we're going to get to a bill sometime in August. And the reason I do is that the White House really wants a bill. It's not just House Democrats or Senate Democrats, even though there's some division on the Senate GOP side. The White House knows that with a contracting economy and with the death toll that's rising, we need to do more. And I will say this, Secretary Mnuchin, who is sort of the lead White House negotiator on these bills, has proven to be a good negotiator. He's proven to be somebody who will stay at the table and then try to find a path forward. Even if we don't always agree on everything, I give him credit for his ability to represent the administration and try to find a, a bill. But anyway, the reason this call is well timed is because, you know, I'd love to hear from all on this call about what your, you know, what's been your experience thus far to set a context. But then, really, what are your continuing needs going forward? Because as a member of the Health, Education, Labor, Pension Committee. I'm not working on all the pieces of this legislation. We tend to specialize. I'm, I'm working particularly on things in the health and education space and then state and local government aid. So that would include hospital and health care, would include child care, which I think is really, really important. And I imagine it's an important issue for your workforce as you're trying to get frontline health care workers into work, but they're worried about their kids. They're worried about school openings and closings. So my piece of the bill is more likely to be in sort of the healthcare education and then state and local government aid space. But whatever you see right now that you think is a need, this call will be really helpful because we'll be back in D.C. next week. And I think for a while uh, trying to come up with the next significant legislative package uh, to assist. Finally, you know, the healthcare needs are extant all over the country for a while. COVID was not such a significant problem in rural America as it was in more densely populated metropolitan areas. But um, my wife and I both had coronavirus in late March and early April. And here's what we learned. It's easy to catch it. Once it's 
once there's community spread, it's easy to catch it. And second, it's really tricky. You may have it and not know you have it. Or in my case, you may have it, but the symptoms may be so odd, you think it's something else and not coronavirus. I thought I was experiencing sort of a blizzard of allergic reactions at the end of March when the pollen count was high. And I thought, okay, I don't have respiratory issues. I don't have a fever. I'm not losing taste or smell, but I'm having a whole series of experiences that are more kind of like hay fever gone wild or something like that. And I didn't think it was coronavirus. Well, <clears throat> with the movement of people, the ease of spread and the fact that such a high percentage of the American population still has not been exposed to it. Um, you're now seeing the epicenter of coronavirus move into more rural communities. The CDC is saying this morning, states like Kansas and Nebraska and Missouri, Midwestern states are starting to tick up in their problems when, uh, when the states in the Southwest are maybe starting to plateau or peak. And we're also seeing some rural communities in Virginia, Eastern Shore, Harrisonburg area, um, Prince Edward Farmville, because of the ICE detention center there that's had a wide outbreak. We're seeing significant rural areas uh, in the country and in the Commonwealth that, that maybe are a little bit later than some areas, but are now seeing significant challenges. So thank you, Beth, for doing this today. Thank you all for the work that you do, which is important every day, but maybe it's never been more important than it is right now. And I want to open it up and, again, take any question, take your advice, take your recommendation. Really happy to have the chance to dialogue with you today. Well, thank you, Senator. At this time, we will be accepting questions and comments from our participants. Please enter your comments into the Q&A box on the webinar portal, and I'll be asking those. While we're waiting for people to submit questions, I've got a few of my own. Um, first of all, one concern specific to rural communities is the lack of birthing centers. Very few of our rural hospitals provide labor and delivery services. Women who show up in labor get stuck in an ambulance and sent someplace else. Would your legislation have the capacity to address that issue? You know, that that's a really good question. Um, I do not think that our legislation specifically focuses on birthing centers in rural America, but there's some other pieces of legislation that I have focused on. So um, Senator Warner and I, for example, are uh, uh, original co-sponsors of a bill that Lamar Alexander has called the Save Rural Hospitals Act, which deals with some uh, funding issues to try to enhance uh, funding for our rural hospitals. Um, that would not necessarily be required to go to birthing centers, but I know the challenge for birthing centers in rural hospitals is often it just isn't the volume of deliveries uh, to enable the hospital to, to be able to meet the local need. Um, and so they end up not having, um, you know, they may have uh, of, uh, GYN services, but not OB services. And then they end up using hospitals that are farther away for deliveries. I think um, some of the uh, legislation like the Save Rural Hospitals Act um, could have some significant um, upside benefit in terms of more birthing centers available in uh, in rural communities. Okay. So one of the things that VRHA has been working hard on is to address the opioid crisis. Are there any specific considerations for mothers impacted by substance use disorders? Um, I think that's that's a really important one. Um, the the uh, the, the model on the Maternal and uh, Newborn Success Act is includes grant funding for innovative programs. And certainly um, these maternal health outcomes are made much more challenged when moms are facing substance use disorders. And so um, I think it's the case that the whole goal of this act is to, you know, bring down disparities and reduce maternal health. I think a lot of the innovative grant funding as well as the research component to the Maternal and Infant Success Act would be very much geared toward, you know, problematic or challenging pregnancies and deliveries to include uh, pregnancies affected by substance use disorder. Uh, so a question came in from our participants. What does the act do to address the special needs of pregnant and parenting teens? That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, the, um, and, and clearly, uh, while the good news is um, teen pregnancy has been reducing, and that's positive, um, teen pregnancies are still uh, disproportionately high-risk pregnancies, and they're, offered, they're often disproportionately in minority communities. 
Um, so uh, again, the Maternal and Infant Success Act, it's the whole goal of it is to you know, improve outcomes and drive down disparities. So the funding that's available for both research and, um, and both innovative programs is very much able to be used in the teen pregnancy space. Now, as you mentioned earlier, some of the, the data in relation to maternal health is, is very frightening. Um, we know in Virginia there are some areas of the state that are, are very much more challenged than other areas. Do we know what some of the key reasons are why those specific parts of Virginia are facing the biggest challenges? You know, that's, that, is, that was the way we approached the uh, infant mortality issue in, with Karen Remley when I was governor, is that we basically said, you know, others have noticed this problem, the mismatch between Virginia's per capita income and our really poor track record on infant mortality. Others had noticed it. Other governors had attempted to solve it. But what Karen realized, and I give her credit for this idea, not me, was she said, the problem is when we tried to solve it in the past, we've tried to come up with statewide solutions to, frankly, a problem that is not a statewide problem. The infant mortality figures in Virginia really were being driven by unacceptably high infant mortality in about a dozen communities. And they were communities that were spread across the Commonwealth. And she said, look, if you do a program, but then you spread out the resources over 135 cities and counties, then you're going to spread the resources too thin to have a meaningful impact. You need to focus it on the communities where the, uh, where the problem is the most significant. And so I think the, the national model needs to be uh, in the same space. Um, and it's shocking. I mean, when, when an African-American woman, and you can measure maternal mortality in a couple of different ways. You can measure it based on a death during pregnancy, delivery, or in the first year after delivery directly related to the pregnancy, or you can measure it uh, by death for any reason. And obviously, either of those measurements, you have a child who now has lost a mother at a very young age. So you can look at it either way, but, it, but however you measure it, the, um, the mortality rate for African-Americans is two to three times that for Caucasian women. And it's even a little bit unusual in that um, often in statistics like this, you would see different uh, significant challenges both for African-American and for Latina mothers that would track each other. But in this case, the Latina um, statistics tend to be more like Caucasian moms and the African-American mother statistics and, and tribal Indian mothers tend to be the outliers. And, and so if you're asking why, why are they outliers? I think it's a whole series of things. It is, um, it's the greater, it's a lack of access to health care that, that affects minority populations more than Caucasian populations. Then that leads to significantly greater rates of pre-existing conditions, which are then complicators during a pregnancy for those who have lacked health care access. There's some solid research showing that uh, structural racism in the medical profession uh, is a part of this that needs to be solved via better education. Uh, examples are, are rife and well-studied that uh, white women who complain about problems during pregnancy, their complaints are taken more seriously. African-American women will complain about things during pregnancy and they're treated as, you know, if not illusory, well, you know, just, you'll probably be okay, go home and we'll deal with it later. And that's even for, for women who are quite wealthy. Uh, they, their, their experiences as they report them to medical professionals are discounted. One of the things that I think we need to do to try to get a hold of this is um, do a better job of uh, diversifying the providers, the medical providers, healthcare providers, so that we have more African-American and especially African-American women the providers who are working with pregnant women and women in the aftermath of, of delivery, because, you know, maybe, maybe the patient will be more willing to open up and then maybe the provider will be more attuned and sensitive to the issues that are being raised. So I think there's a whole series of issues and, and in our bill, we, we try to get at all of them. Education, research, public awareness, innovation, grant programs, and that's what it's gonna take to, uh, to, to whip this disparity. And I, I know you guys know this is not just a priority for me at the federal level, it's also a priority for Governor Northam because he's announced a 
similar initiative at the state level to try to drive these disparities down. So we've got a follow-up question on the data. What data is being used to address these disparities? Who collects it? How often is it updated? How can all of us who are working on these issues get access to that data? That's a really good question. And I'll tell you, um, I'm gonna, we'll do a follow-up on this call with the association from Katie Wright from my office. We'll share with you the kinds of data that we use. But um, we, uh, we have long believed that our public health data systems are inadequate. Senator Johnny Isaacs and I introduced a bill about a year ago. Senator Isaacson is now retired. And we introduced a bill called the Saving Lives Through Better Data Act to, to really try to update public health data collection and the sharing of information between local health departments, state health departments, and at the federal level. Um, the, the, the level of uh, data is inadequate. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're grappling with that right now in terms of COVID-related data still a very sizable percentage of COVID cases. There is not good data collection about the demographics of the COVID victims that would give us the ability to really pinpoint our resources. Um, I was happy that in the CARES Act at the end of March, a number of the provisions of the Saving Lives Through Better Data Act uh, from Senator Isaacs and me were added into that bill and were funded. Um, and we're trying to get um, additional, the additional provisions added with funding uh, to uh, to really build out a robust data collection and dissemination uh, system. It's going to be important for our health officials to know it, but it's also really going to be uh, make our research efforts much more effective if our data systems can be improved. Katie Wright will follow up, uh, Beth, with the association to share with you the particular data sets that right now we find the most helpful in grappling with this issue about uh, differentials in maternal outcomes. Now, you mentioned earlier about one of the issues is that you know, African-American women are, are more likely to be living in poverty. But one of the things that we know in terms of maternal health is that even people who are very wealthy um, have trouble on this issue. Uh, there's been some very big examples in the media, where uh, Serena Williams, yeah. Beyonce Williams Carter, who are both quite wealthy, had trouble uh, with pregnancy and giving birth because of these issues. So what's included in the act to impact health and wellness women in the Commonwealth who earn more than 200% of the federal poverty guidelines and therefore are not eligible for most of the state and federal assistance that comes out? Yeah, that's, boy, that's a really good question. And I will say, um, and I'm, I'm not the only senator who is pushing some dramatic solutions on this. I'm also a co-sponsor of a significant maternal uh, disparity bill that Senator Kamala Harris um, filed a number of months back, and I'm a co-sponsor with her. Um, you're, you're right that some of the traditional federal assistance go to uh, mothers and families who are, you know, um, at some percentage of the federal poverty line, but not above that. But it is the case that we're seeing, and, and I've had a series of maternal health roundtables around the uh, state, and I'm continuing to do one. I'm going to do one in uh, Harrisonburg, not next week, but the following week. I'm having a series of these, and I hear the stories over and over again about, hey, I, I have good health insurance, and I, you know, was pregnant, and here's my experience with my, with my physician. And there is the issue of a downgrading or a diminution in providers' reactions to um, African-American women's complaints during their pregnancies. Um, and they're just not taken as seriously. And to the extent that uh, African-American women do not see providers who are African-American don't look like them, they don't, they're not sure that their provider is fully sensitive to their experience. There may even be some subtle self-censorship in terms of reporting uh, problems. And so this is a really tough issue, but I, I think it's it's demonstrable that the issue is not purely a resource issue. It's also a race issue. Um, it's, it's a race issue in other ways. The, the stresses and strains on minority populations, psychic stresses and strains. Look at the endless replaying of George Floyd's murder and police brutality issues. These things have a traumatizing effect on minority communities that are different than their effect on white communities. 
And so uh, mental state and mental anxiety has something to do, obviously, with, with healthy pregnancies and healthy deliveries. So this is a, a deep, deep problem where you can't explain the disparity without getting into a long history of racism that has left minority communities with significantly fewer resources, less access to healthcare, higher prevalence of pre-existing conditions, and in real time, in current time, uh, a sad tendency for the complaints of some not to be viewed as seriously as the complaints of others. So um, the, the way this bill is set up, it's not, uh, the funds for this bill are not allocated under the normal you know, um, uh, funding formulas that are just for low-income folks. This is this is a bill that's about grant funding and research and education and training of professionals um, because that needs to be done uh, for for women of all income levels who are minority women if we're going to make a difference and bring these statistics down. So we've got a follow-up question on that. Great. Um, it seems that you know some of these issues need to be addressed through the training education of OB health providers. Are there yes. provisions in the act for that? Um, there, there are some provisions in that act and others. I think the Kamala Harris Act uh, bill has it, and we are very focused on, on uh, education issues too. I will say the, the great thing about being on the health committee in the Senate is that it's um, it combines healthcare and education, health education, and that includes the education of the healthcare workforce. So, um, a bill that we're grappling with in the health committee right now is reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, which we do about every 10 years. When we reauthorize the Higher Education Act, we often are looking at professions where, hey, we don't have enough uh, mental health providers, for example, or we don't have enough minority classroom teachers. Here's an interesting tidbit that's, that's not directly related, but sort of is related. Um, the populations of kids in America's public schools in the last 20 years have become more significantly minority and more significantly African-American, but the, the percentage of classroom teachers who are African-American has actually gone down. And so as we're grappling with the Higher Education Act, one of the things we're thinking about is in the area of teacher training, we need to be using um, uh, our uh, historically black colleges and minority serving institutions to train more teachers. Um, yesterday, I introduced a bill dealing with our historically black colleges um, and support for them. And certainly one of my goals, some of it you can accomplish through the Maternal and Infant Success Act, some of it through higher ed reauthorization, some of it through the HBCU bill, it's going to take a coordinated strategy, but it is certainly the case that we need to be training more minorities in healthcare professions, but also having, you know, greater training about sensitivity to different cultures and, and, you know, making sure that our healthcare providers don't subtly discount the reported experiences of uh, people who look differently than they do. So somebody wants to know, why is this a bipartisan issue? Why, why, why is it a bipartisan issue? Well, that's, that's the question. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, you know, of course, this should be bipartisan because it's, um, you know, I, I, I just think of the, you know, ideological spectrum of senators um, right to left. You know, one of the, one of the motivations of this bill, I'll tell you when Katie Wright and I started talking about a year ago, is I said, look, I want to do a bill that the most ardent pro-life Senator and the most ardent pro-choice Senator could both say, this is a good idea. Um, you know, I, I, on, on, on issues, I'm kind of a centrist on some of these issues. I'm not pro-life enough for pro-lifers and I'm not pro-choice enough for pro-choicers, but I am, um, often noticing um, that this is a that the, the life versus choice issues are sharp dividers in American politics. They were in the Virginia General Assembly. They are in um, Congress. But you should be able to get everybody on board with the proposition that you want mothers to have healthy pregnancies and you want children who are born to be able to start off as healthy as they can. That that. There should be no disagreement about that. And so we sort of started in a way with that idea 
what could we do about maternal and infant success that a, an ardent pro-choicer and an ardent pro-lifer could both say, that's a great bill. Now, as, as we've worked, we've worked very carefully with stakeholder groups, you know, American College of Pediatricians and, and the OBGYNs, and we've worked with a lot of groups to make this bill better and better. The administration has been helpful as we've shared it with HHS. Um, but I think the other thing that, you know, has made this bill bipartisan is, um, and as I looked for a Republican colleague, I wanted somebody who was on the help committee with me, uh, Lisa Murkowski is, and if you look at the disparity statistics, it's not so plain in Virginia because our, our Indian tribal population is small, but if you look at the statistics around the country, again, the African-American disparity rate doesn't really track with the Latino rate, but it really tracks with tribal women. And so a lot of our um, states where there's heavy tribal populations, the Northern states, Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas, um, state like Arizona, state like Alaska certainly have significant uh, Republican representation in the Senate and in the House. And so um, I was, I've worked closely with Lisa Murkowski on a lot of things. She seemed like a natural on this one, and she's she's all, already had a demonstrated interest in maternal health issues. So that's how the bill got to be bipartisan in the Senate. But in a way, its very origin was, you know, there should be no partisan difference in wanting moms to have successful pregnancies and to have babies born with the best possible chance of success in life. Any other questions from the members or our audience? We don't have any current questions in the uh, Q&A portal. Beth, how about from, from the association, um, what would priorities of yours be in the next COVID package? So obviously we had hospital funding um, in, uh, in the CARES Act and that funding has gone out to hospitals, including rural hospitals. There were other kinds of funds, PPP funding and things that could be accessed by rural health providers, but on the ground right now, in terms of what you guys are seeing, what are priorities that you think I should be focusing on with my colleagues as we're in Washington trying to do the next COVID bill? Sure. You know, so funding is great if there are things that you can purchase. Uh, one of the things that Virginia Rural Health Association has been doing recently is serving as a group purchasing entity for some of the small rural clinics that don't have the buying power of the big hospitals. Yep. Um, and I, I cannot get in gloves. I cannot get in N95 respirators. Uh, hand sanitizer is precious. I can get mm -hmm. it, but oh my. Um, so anything that can be done to secure resources for healthcare okay. providers would be absolutely appreciated. Um, you know, the other thing that we're looking at is there's there's temporary provisions in place to be able to allow providers uh, to do telehealth, um, specifically our rural health clinics. Yes. We need those provisions to stay once COVID mm -hmm. goes away. We, we sure. definitely need to have that long term. And then, of course, telehealth doesn't do much good if you don't also have broadband. So right. anything to expand the broadband uh, infrastructure is very much appreciated. Let, let me talk about those two items that you raised, and then if you have others or folks on the call, do I want to hear those too? So first, in terms of the procurement, let me just ask from kind of a functional standpoint, when you have procurement issues, is it everybody fending for themselves, or can you go to like the, you know, governor's office, secretary of health and human resources, health commissioner, and say, hey, we're having trouble getting N95 masks, or can you help us with procurement? So do you... Is it everybody trying to do their best on their own, or are there helpful uh, resources at the state level that you access to try to get material that you need? You know, we've been told that there's material available at the state level, but I haven't figured out which buttons to push to make that happen. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's important for me to know. Um, we, the federal delegation, has regular calls with the governor and his cabinet about you know, he'll ask us what we're doing on the next bill and we'll ask him, hey, what are you doing to help out free clinics or rural health care providers? So I'll put that on my question for the next call that we have. On the second issue, the telehealth reimbursement rates, really good point. Um, the, the uptick in use of telehealth is 
it's been 10 years of acceleration in four months. And, um, and it's shown us that the old status quo is unacceptable and we shouldn't go backwards to it. So you'll be, you'll be pleased to know that I think there is just complete bipartisan consensus that the adjustment that we made on reimbursement rates to raise reimbursement for telehealth visits, which was sort of an emergency adjustment during this time, um, I think it will likely be extended in the next bill, probably until the end of 2021. And I believe it will, that it will then be made permanent. I don't think we're going backwards. Um, the second aspect that you point out is, look, you know, telehealth can be great. Um, I've had physicians tell me they've gone to 70% telehealth, and they think when COVID is long gone, that's probably the right percentage. They say you shouldn't do your first visit with a patient when you're getting to know them. You need to do that in person so you can really get to know them. But then an awful lot of visits can be via telehealth, depending upon the medical subspecialty. But it only works if you have access to broadband or some high-quality telecon and if you can afford you know, a, a device that has a good ability to link in. So poor people who don't have devices or rural folks who lack access to high-quality broadband um, are going to be left behind. And that puts more of a burden on our shoulders to to finish what we've said was a priority for a very long time, which is a, you know, a complete build out of the nation so that everybody, regardless of zip code, has access to high quality broadband or, or other teleconnectivity. So there's a follow up uh, question with that. How Great. will telehealth people who cannot get broadband connection with doctors, especially in rural areas, is that going to be addressed in any of the bills that you're looking at? Um, yeah, I believe it will be in this next bill. If, if you know, Dems have their way, um, th there has been some discussion about whether we would do an infrastructure bill, you know, to deal with the economic challenges we're facing. I think that's not that likely that we're going to do a big infrastructure bill anytime soon. I think in the next presidential term, whether it's President Trump or President Biden, I think an infrastructure bill would make a whole lot of sense. But even though the big bill might wait till the next term, I think you might see in uh, greater investments in broadband as part of this next bill. We did put broadband investments and telecom investments into CARES Act, but it was modest. Um, and um, but I think the just again, the experience that we're all living under, it's great to be able to have this meeting with you guys via Zoom. It's great that students can get course content, not just higher ed, but K-12 content online or visit a doctor or healthcare provider online, but it only works if you've got connectivity. So I think we might pull that out of the infrastructure bill that's down the line. And because it's so directly related to the way we're living under coronavirus, I would suspect that you might see some uh, additional broadband investments in the next COVID bill. But then certainly when we get to a next infrastructure bill, it won't just be bridges and roads. It's good, you know, the tradition would be bridges, roads, rail, airport, ports, but now broadband is gonna be considered fundamental, uh, critical infrastructure likely to be funded as we approach dealing with our nation's infrastructure needs. And we've got a follow-up comment in regards to the lack of uh, protective supplies for right. healthcare providers. Right. Um, in this case, the, the people who are educating healthcare students, so faculty at, at medical colleges, mm -hmm. nursing colleges, have concerns about how we are going to educate the students using PPE when providers in our rural areas are already having to reuse PPE due to shortages. Yeah. Um, and the comment goes on to say providing supplies and funding so those in education are not taking away from those on the front line should be a priority. Um, I agree with you. I mean, I think the, um, as I'm going around and visiting healthcare providers, so most recently, I was at the McGuire VA in Richmond. I'm always asking, but okay, tell me about your PPE supply. How do you get it? Do you have what you need? And, and with most, you know, the, the story is there's sort of an arc. It was really tough in February, March, and April. Things have opened up a little bit more. People are finding it's a little bit easier to get. But there's still, you know, sort of a triage that, you know, bigger hospitals get it faster than smaller hospitals. Smaller hospitals get it faster than free clinics. Free clinics get it faster than, than you know, local physicians' offices. Um, nursing homes need it. They have a hard time getting it. 
schools need it. They have a harder time getting it. So they're, they're, the PPE need is not just in hospitals. It's a very broad need. And um, we very much have to worry about, you know, we, we got to produce an ample supply and not cannibalize each other's supplies. Even the, uh, admit, the, the Trump administration, they sort of pitted states against each other by not saying this was a federal federal priority and amply using the Defense Production Act to order production of equipment. They said, well, states, you should go out and order. And you found states bidding up prices against each other. That was not the right way to handle it. I think it's gotten better. But um, I would say this, Beth, from your guys' standpoint, any information that you could share with us about shortages throughout our rural health providers in Virginia, if you would share that with Katie, uh, we can do a couple of things. We can look at whether there are aspects of the uh, of that problem that we should solve in the next bill, but we can also interact with the governor's office to make sure that everything's being done right at the state level to prioritize your needs. Um, new question came in. Migrant mm -hmm. labor camps don't fall under OSHA. VDH mm -hmm. can inspect for general living conditions, but don't have any th authority to enforce COVID rules. There's been some outbreaks. The harvest season is coming very soon. Are there concerns, activities, services that might be going on for this group? Um, certainly concerns, but actually I'm really glad you raised it because while, while we're noticing um, you know, hot spots in some of these areas. I hadn't thought about this harvest season, which would raise the risk of even greater spread. And um, so I gather that this is not an OSHA responsibility because it's not under the Department of Labor. Instead, it's under the Department of Agriculture. I, I think that's correct, but I don't yeah. actually know. We can look into that. Okay, well, um, what, what I'll do is I have staff on this call. We, we've been doing a lot of outreach to the administration around, you know, what we would consider sensitive locations where spread is likely that, sadly, there's an ICE detention facility in Farmville where 80% of the detainees have coronavirus and a sizable percentage of the staff do as well. And I think it's because ICE is not managing well the operation of the facility and then also there are policies about the moving of detainees from one part of the country to the other that are almost guaranteed to magnify a spread. And then when you have, you know, 25 to 30 staff members have coronavirus, many of whom are asymptomatic, they're going out into the community and they're spreading it. So we, we, we focus on sort of what we would consider hot spots and we try to direct some attention to them. But we've not yet in our office really directed that attention to um, migrant labor communities. And because you've asked that question, my staff um, and I will get on that. And the person who made that comment just clarified that it's Department of Labor. So it's not OSHA, but it is in the Department of Labor, but not within OSHA. Apparently, yes. Huh. Okay. Right. Uh, Follow-up question on the broadband issue. Um, yes. Expanding video is great, uh, but many of our rural patients can't use it. So continued reimbursement for phone visits is also important. Right now, CMS has waived the video requirement, but if that changes, a number of our patients are again stuck with any sort of access. Can, can Congress help to make sure that, that phone calls are included in that process? Yeah, yes, and, and that has, again, been uh, temporarily allowed. Uh, we need to do more of that. Um, I, I would view that as a stopgap measure. I don't want to end up letting the um, allowing high reimbursement for phone calls slow down our goal of getting to full broadband rollout because I do think that just in talking to physicians um, there's just I mean my uh, just funny example my wife got bit by a, an unknown bug last week that caused her arm to swell up and it was just so great to be able to take a cell phone and call into a doctor and be able to maneuver the phone around her arm so that the doctor, the provider could figure out what was up. Um, couldn't have done that uh, absent um, some good cell phone linkage. So in a normal, um, uh, you know, just uh, audio only wouldn't have worked there. So we want to do what we can to give people the full capacity to do some kind of a video link if they can. But you're right under this time when people, especially people who live far away from providers and who might be worried about going in because 
they could infect somebody or be infected, we need to keep the telephone option uh, available for those who don't have a video link. Yep, absolutely need the phone option to be a, a both and, not an either or on phone and video. We very much appreciated. So at this point, I don't have any other questions in the queue and we are at the top of the hour. I'll give you the opportunity to give some closing statements. Well, Beth, just all I want to do on closing is just encourage you reach out to us um, over the coming weeks as we're working on the next bill. You can, you know, reach out to my regional offices. I have offices in Abingdon, uh, Roanoke, Hampton Roads, Fredericksburg, Manassas, Richmond. Reach out to one of our regional offices um, or reach out to my policy director, uh, legislative director, Nick Barbash, or my healthcare policy advisor, Katie Wright. Um, any, any office of mine you reach out to, you'll get to the right place. But um, this has been helpful because hearing about your concerns gives me some sense about things I need to work on, both on the maternal health bill that we're really excited about, um, but also more broadly as we're grappling with the COVID challenges. And, um, you know, our advocacy is always made better uh, the more we hear from y'all. So that's why I appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion today. Well, thank you, Senator Kane, for your support of rural health issues. And thanks also to the members of the public and the media who are able to join us today. Great. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you. That's Virginia Senator Tim Kane with his plans to improve maternal health for at-risk populations. A summary of the Mothers and Newborn Success Act can be found in the show notes, along with contact information for Senator Kate's staff if you would like to provide additional input. Make sure you receive advance notice for future VRHA events by becoming a member. Visit vrha.org and click the membership tab for details. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.